Welcome everyone, thanks for being here. My name is Michael Fraud, I'm the Assistant Program Director at Drisha. Very happy to have everyone back for our next session of our class, Alter Ego, Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah, uh, and with uh, Rabbi David Silver. Uh, Rabbi Silver is the founder and dean of Drisha. It's been uh, a lot of fun for the beginning of this class. We've been looking at chapters 19 and 20 in Bereshi, looking a bit at the continuation of the story of Avraham that we saw earlier throughout this year. Last time we looked a bit at chapter 20 and a little bit into chapter 21 of the relationship between Avraham and Sarah and Abimelech and the different occasions where we see those characters interact in Bereshit. We are going to be taking a, a quick look back at some of that material in chapter 20 and toward the end of chapter 21 before spending most of our time today on uh, the middle or the, the, the beginning and middle of, of chapter 21. Uh, so we're very excited to be learning all of that together today. Uh, a few quick Reminders for Zoom, we always appreciate it if folks are able to keep their video on. We love being able to see who's in the room with us. We also appreciate it when people are able to be careful to keep themselves on mute to avoid any distractions or background noise. We will have some points where we pause for questions and answers, but if you want to chime in uh, in between those sessions, please feel free to use the chat function if you're on Zoom or the comment section if you're on Facebook Live. You can follow along at home if you have a Tanakh or uh, you want to pull it up on your screen. We'll be looking mostly again at chapter 21, but we'll also be doing a screen share for the text that we're looking at. So please feel free to follow along however is, is easiest for you. If you have any kinds of tech questions or behind the scenes needs, please feel free to send me a direct message on Zoom and I'll be happy to help. And with that, I am going to turn it over to Rabbi Silber. Thank you very much. Okay, so uh, let's pick up briefly where we left off last week. Last week we noticed a uh, connection between what takes place in chapter 20 in terms of Avram and Abimelech and the end of chapter 21. So that, for example, in chapter 20, uh, first Abimelech says to Sarah, he says, I've given you a brother a thousand kesef thousand pieces of silver. This will be for you a ksute naim, a covering of the eyes. This is found in chapter 20 um, in verses uh, verse, uh, 16. Verse 16 in chapter 20. So this will serve as a rebuke, as it were, to anybody who would criticize what happened or suggest something uh, happened in terms of me and you, uh, this will demonstrate that it will serve as a, a rejoinder or a, a rebuke. And in the context over there, apart from calling Avram Sarah's brother, which echoes what Avram had said, he then also invited Avram to stay with him. He says, listen, you stay with me. You can stay wherever you want, feel comfortable. And we pointed out that he should feel comfortable because the language that Avram uses and the language that Abimelech uses is virtually indistinguishable. And in particular, the Begam. He has one answer, he has a second answer, he has a third answer, he blames this one, he blames that one, he blames the other one. 
They're talking the same language. That's in chapter 20. When you get to the end of chapter 21, however, the Rabbi Yoh comes to greet Abraham. He brings his, uh, his army person with him, chief of his troops. And he says to Abraham, let's make a, uh, let's make a treaty between us. And uh, I want you to swear, he says to Avram, that you will not mistreat my, my descendants. The kindness that I showed to you, you should, should reciprocate the, the kindness, the chesed. But Avram says, I'm happy to swear. I will swear. However, in verse number uh, 25, at the end of chapter 21, Avraham rebuked Abimelech. So he rebukes him for the water that his servants stole. And Abimelech has his answer, of course. He has three answers. First of all, he says, I know nothing about it. It's your fault for not telling me. And we'll deal with it in the future. And the operative word, of course, is Vigam. So Avraham accuses Abimelech more or less similar to what God had accused Abimelech of in chapter 20. You took somebody that doesn't belong to you. You took this, returned this woman, she's married to somebody else. So the point is, and Abimelech's response in those two cases is similar. But Avram's response seems to be different because Avram, first of all, he rebukes him. And the second point is, unlike in the first instance where Abimelech gives him Tzonu Bakar, in chapter 20, but in chapter 21, it says that Avram sets aside Sheva Kvasot. He sets aside seven ewes, and Abimelech says, what are these seven Kvasot that you have set aside? And Avram says, these will be as a witness that this is my well. The well he had just dug is mine, says Abraham, and that well is called Be'er Sheva. So the two stories, Abimelech is the same Abimelech, but Avram seems to be different. So let me just, just to reflect a little more upon that, I want to point out um, two, two words that are operative in chapter 20 and chapter 21. The first word is the word Vohiach, that Avraham rebuked Avimelech Vohiach. And in chapter 20, when Avimelech spoke about the money he had given to uh, Abraham, tell Sarah et kol v'nochachat. It will serve perhaps as a rejoinder or a rebuke. So we have that same word, nochachat and v'hochiach. And it's interesting to reflect upon the language of the story and how this language appears in other stories as well. So for example, this is one story of Abraham and Sarah. And then we have a second story, a marriage story, that appears a bit later in the Chumash. And that's when Avram, in chapter 24, sends his servant out to find uh, a wife for, for Yitzchak. One might say a replacement for Sarah. So he sends the servant out with instructions. Go back to my homeland. Find someone from my homeland who's willing to leave her place and come here, says Avraham. If she refuses to come, she's the wrong one. Um, so uh, the servant sets out with instructions, but with no sense of how do you actually accomplish the mission. 
because Avram doesn't tell him how to find such a person. He's, the servant's on his own. And the servant constructs his own test, as it were, in order to determine uh, or to discover the appropriate person, the appropriate woman. And in chapter 24, the servant leaves with the camels laden with all kinds of goods. And the Torah says in chapter 24 that he comes to a, a well. Right outside the city, he goes to Be'er Hamayim. He goes to a well of water. We ate Erev, we ate Seita Shalavot towards evening when the, uh, when the young women go out to draw water. Shalavot. And then he actually prays. So the servant prays at the well. Maybe on another occasion, we'll spend a lot of time on this. It's very interesting in terms of prayer. It's a prayer that's very similar to our prayers. Praise to the God of, uh, the, the God of Abraham. And he says, the servant says, he asked for chesed. I say chesed im Adoni Abraham. Oh God, do kindness or be, be gracious, show kindness to my master Abraham. And he sets up a test, as we know. I'm standing here by the well and I ask someone to give me something to drink. And the one who says, I'll give you to drink and also the camels, she's the one. That's a demonstration of compassion. It's one of the qualities of Abraham, etc. And even before he finishes talking, Rivka comes out. The servant, um, if we go back, um, yeah, right. So the servant had prayed, and 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 uh, let me just find this verse. Yes, it's verse number fourteen, actually, before Rivka comes out. So this is the one. This is the one you, you have demonstrated. That's a word that we have in our story. And in the story of marriage, this is the one that and that word is repeated later on when the servant meets the family and he tells the family what has happened. Uh, he changes many things. That's not our topic right now. He's very clever, but he uses the same language once again with the word This is the one that you in fact have, God has demonstrated is the right one. Um, let's see if we can find that verse. It's later on in the chapter. Yes, it's verse number 44, chapter 24. If she says, you drink, and I'll draw for the camels, So that's very interesting. There we have chesed. Chesed is the test of, is this the appropriate woman or not? And if she does the chesed, then this is clearly the, the, the correct uh, partner for, for Yitzchak. This is the one that Hashem is hochiach, appears twice in the story, in the context of marriage. The word chesed also appears. Servant prays to the God of Abraham to do chesed. That's how we begin our, our daily prayers. And the first blessing is Abraham's blessing. So the servant actually is the, one might say the, 
the forerunner of our, of our, of our, of our daily prayer. But what's interesting is that Avimelech also spoke about chesed. In chapter 21, Avimelech said to Abraham, he said, Avimelech comes to Abraham and says, listen, I want you to swear to be good to my descendants. Show me the kindness that we have shown you. Show me the chesed that we have shown you. Now the word chesed, of course, appeared in chapter 20, when Avimelech said to Abraham, why did you lie? Why did you say that she's your sister? In fact, she's your wife. So Avraham had three answers. But answer number three, Avraham says, listen, um, ever since we wandered aimlessly from home, God caused me to wander aimlessly. Um, this is found in uh, verse number 13 of chapter 20. This is the chesed you should show me. Every place we go, say he is my brother. That was his third answer. Why did you do this? We do this in every place. But he uses the word chesed. This is the chesed you should show me. Now, when we reflect upon what was the chesed that Avimelch showed Abraham or Sarah, what's the chesed? That after he took her inappropriately, he paid a fine. From Avimelch's perspective, of course, this is the great kindness we have showed you. We could have done worse. But what's interesting is not just that the, the distinction we make between the chesed, as Avimelch sees it in this story, and the chesed that the servant sees in chapter 24, but we have to remember something else about the Chumash, which is interesting. We just read this week the parasha of, of Arayot in Sefer Vayikra. Actually, it's two chapters. There's chapter 18 and chapter 20. Chapter 18 is a list of forbidden relationships. And chapter 20, generally speaking, is a list of punishments that you incur if you engage in these forbidden relationships. So when it comes, there are different relationships, incestuous ones for the most part. And in chapter 20 of Vayikra, it, one of the forbidden relationships is uh, marrying a, uh, it's put in terms of the man, man marrying a sister, sister marrying a brother. Sister and brother is a forbidden relationship. And that's actually very interesting how the Torah describes that. Let's find that verse. Um, where is that verse in chapter 20? Let's see. Um, where is the verse? Yes, it's chapter 20 in Vayikra, verse 17. <speaking in Hebrew> The brother-sister forbidden relationship is very interesting for a bunch of reasons. But one of the things that's very striking, apart from the fact that the Torah in Vayikra says explicitly either brother from the father or the mother, that's a very interesting statement in that verse. Avram, for example, said to Avimelech, she's the sister from my father's side, but not my mother, I took her as a wife. So apparently, from the perspective of Sefer Breshit, you can marry the sister from the father, not from the mother. But in any event, the Torah describes this forbidden relationship as chesed, whatever that means, chesed. That's how the Torah describes it, chesed is chesed. And it strikes me that the, the, one can read the verse in Bayikra as playing off our story. 
Avimoch says to Avram, I want you to do chesed to me just as we did you chesed. Once things about Avimoch of chapter 20, the word chesed does not jump to mind, but it does, does jump to mind if you read it in light of the verse in Vayikra, chapter 20, verse 17, chesed. So that's very interesting. How the, these words are important. See how different texts use pretty much the same words or the same roots to convey this story and have one story then perhaps speaks to the other. So that's with Abraham and Sarah. We have with Yitzhak and Rivka. What about with Yaakov actually? Does, the word chesed does not appear to the best of my knowledge, but what about the other word? What about the word lahochiach v'nochachet? Um, what about that word? So there, hochachta. Do we have it in the Yaakov cycle, in the Yaakov stories? Do we have this word appear in any sense in the context of marriage? And here I think it's very interesting. <coughs> we do and we don't. We do and we don't. What's interesting is, and I've set out, I said to myself, it's got to be there. But how it appears is very striking. Because remember the story of Yaakov in the house of Ravan. He's married not to one woman, but to two, or perhaps to four. He intended to marry one, ends up with four. And uh, then, of course, what happens is that the wife that he didn't want to marry begins having a lot of children. And the other wife that he loved, wished to marry, Rachel, has no children. And she says to Yaakov in the beginning of chapter 30 of Breshit, she's jealous of her sister. That's Kanei Rachel Bachota. Unhappy situation. So Yaakov says, what can I do? What is this? He gets angry. Am I God? Who is withheld from your children? That's Yaakov's response. Rashi critiques him for it. Not our issue right now. But in point of fact, he says, there's nothing I can do. It's out of my control. Fine. Then she offers her servant, Bilha. Then she trades for mandrakes with her sister. Then she takes the trophim as well. Fine. But what's interesting is, uh, interesting that the word nun chavchet does appear in the Jacob story. Not in the context, and it appears in the Jacob story in the context of having children, actually. But the context it appears is not Rachel having children, or not Leah having children, but it appears in the context of Jacob manipulating the flocks. Remember that Jacob made a deal with Ravan, the speckled and spotted ones, they belong to me. The other ones with no spots and speckles belong to you. And then Jacob manipulates the flocks. So let's find that verse, how he manipulates the flocks. He manipulates the flocks. What would that be in chapter 31, I think? Let's see. chapter 31. That sounds very correct. No, Shoshim Vishmon, I don't see that. And Lamed, Lamed, yes, that's correct, right. right. So there it says, 
ויצג את המכות אשר פיצל בורהטים בשליקתות המים, אשר תבואנה הצאן לשתות ונוכח הצאן, ויחם לבבואן לשתות. He places the צאן לנוכח הצאן, לא מת, at the troughs. That's לנוכח הצאן. So that Yaakov had said to Rachel, nothing I can do when it comes to birth, you having children, giving birth, there's nothing I can do. And he gets angry. But he's quite industrious when it comes to his son having, having children. He arranges them, we are told, That's what we have benochach. And of course, the reader of the story, whatever we think of Jacob's manipulations over here, we have no sympathy for Laban who has essentially deceived Yaakov, who has manipulated his, 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 his wives. That's the story of Yaakov in the house of Laban. Then Laban chases after Yaakov, and he says, you stole my daughters. Why did you steal, right? You stole my daughters, he says. You stole my gods, Trophim, of which Jacob does not know. And Jacob says, go search. And Laban finds nothing. After which Yaakov, writes into Lavan, critiques Lavan, and he describes how he sees his 20 years of service in Lavan's house. At the end of which he says, you know, I worked 20 years for you, 14 years for your daughters, six years for the flocks. You changed my wages 10 times. It's the very end of chapter 31. And then he says, the God of Abraham, fear of Isaac. Not for God, you would have left me with no, sent me away with nothing. At the onyevi at kapai, my my suffering, my oppression, and my hard labor. Ro'ay Elohim, God saw. We write it ourselves. Vayochach Amish, and God rebuked you last night. Vayochach. Of course, it reinforces what I had mentioned earlier. Ravi Melch and Lavan are kindred spirits. You read one in light of the other. They're almost identical in the way they operate. Always deflecting responsibility. Always uh, blaming everybody else. Being manipulative. Thievery. They're all the same, you know? Um, but what's interesting is that the Torah does reserve nun chavchet for Yaakov and Lavan in the context of marriage and there it's different though. There the Vinochach is about the, the, the animals, the sheep, the flock, and raises questions about Yaakov and Rachel to begin with. And then of course we have the rebuke, which is similar to Viochiach Avraham et Abimelech, and how both, in this case it's God, and, and Yaakov, Viochach Amesh. So it's a small example, which we have to be very attuned to and attentive to about how the Torah uses certain words and they repeat in different stories and how they function within the stories. It's not just looking up the word in the dictionary, but equally, if not more important, how they function within the context of the stories. So I just wanted to mention that. So it's an interesting observation about Avram, Yitzhak and Yaakov and Sarah and Rivka and Rachel in the context of Sefer Breshit and the use of this particular word. Let me stop here for a moment to take comments or questions. <laughs> And then we'll get back to our main uh, topic today, of chapter 21 and chapter 20. Yeah, it's, it certainly, oh, no, okay. it certainly sheds great light on the use of kochacha hagadol in, uh, in the Exodus story. 
Well, you think that, uh, well, perhaps. I mean, the Koach and Nochach are not the same. Uh, Vayochach right. makes it jump out for me that the main letters are Chaf Chet. Could be. It's possible. It's certainly possible. And there certainly is a critique. At least of, as a play. It could be. It could be a play on words. The word Nochach, by the way, I think is not chosen arbitrarily because remember that the word Nochach actually means across from. So it re reminds the reader of a different phrase in Sefer Breshit, when God said about the creation of the woman, Eselo Ezer Kinegdo, I will make him an Ezer across from him, Kinegdo. And actually, that comes up in a different text that they uses the word Nochach. In the, in the course in the, uh, in the Megillah, when, when Mordechai says to Esther, you have to go to the king, walk into the king's inner chamber and beg the king for your people. Esther says, I can't do that. It's too dangerous, etc." And But she agrees finally to do it. And she, she dresses up in her you know, regal uh, uh, outfit. And she stands, we are told, Nochach Beitamelech, where she can be seen. She stands Nochach across from. There the Nochach is actually Kinegdo. She yep. stands in a place where she can be seen. And of course, what she's playing with and what the Megillah plays with, clearly, Achashverosh, for his own reasons, cares about Esther. Um, but Nochach and Koach... Else, actually. Yeah. But Nochach and Koach are both decisive. It's about... Yeah, yeah. It could, it's possible. I'm just saying it's a different word. It is possible that you call a literary effect, and that is a possibility. Someone else had a comment here? Um, Rabbi yes. did, did you mention Lenochach Ishtokia Karai? Did you mention this? No, I did not mention that. That's very good. I thank you very much for that. It's a perfect example of what I said many times. When you're on the right track, you see good things. That's exactly right. The Medrash is very interesting. It's not the Pshat. But what does the Medrash say? Each one stood in the corner facing the other. That's not the Pshat, but they're picking up on something about this. And it is certainly the case if we think about marriages and say for Breshit, I would say in general, I'm not sure that's a, a great role model for us, but if there is one model, which is not perfect, but is certainly very powerful about mutual concern for the other, it's Yitzchak and, uh, and, uh, and Rivka. Yitzchak prays for Rivka. He himself has no children, but he prays for her. Avram prays for himself, as Rashi noted. You didn't give me a child. Yitzchak actually, who has no children himself, prays for her. So that's a very good point. Excellent. There you have the Nochach as well. Can I still ask a question? Go ahead. Um, Is there something so good as that? Can I say no? Go ahead. Um, if, if we believe Sefer Bereshit was given at Sinai, I don't know, 12th uh, century BC, or we believe it was written by a human, uh, I don't know when, still we can agree that uh, Israel, when they Nagedu uh, Bamidbar, they were telling the stories about, about their founding fathers, orally. That is so, a question or a statement then? Okay, no, this is a, uh, the background. Now question. Would you consider the option that we are not talking about three different occurrences, 
but three different versions that were told orally about our founding father, we are not really sure, was it Avram, was it Yitzchak, was it Grar, was it Mitzrayim, because hundreds of years passed meanwhile. And actually, these are three versions of the same story, so to speak. And does it any, in any way matter to, to us if it's this? Uh, if it's I, I would say the following. Versions. I would say in general, not only about the specific situation. I, my own view is, first of all, I, I suspect that before things get written down in general, they are, there are oral traditions that at some point get written down or don't get written down. Um, and I also believe that the, let's say the Torah or the Bible in general has its sources. There's, you, one cannot, uh, I think, you can shut your eyes, but anybody who, you, gets involved in the study of Bible understands very well that the stories of the Torah have many, many parallels in the ancient Near East. There were probably dozens of flood stories, some of which are strikingly similar. And my view is essentially, I guess, Casuto's view, which is that whatever the history of it is, at the end of the day, we have something written down, however it came to be. So in the book that we have, there are three different stories. Clearly, the, it's an invitation to read them together and to compare and contrast them. Whether it was at some point a story about one person, three people, or whatever, I don't see that from my own perspective. I don't really, uh, in other words, I think there's something definitive about the book. When the book is written, this is the book we have. Uh, whatever the sources may be, you know, nowadays there are people, and maybe for good reasons, who try to find within the Chumash many voices, which there are, many voices, but then they try to claim that some something which plays off something else, that that's something else has equal status to the, to the finished product. Personally, I, I don't buy it. I, I believe that you have a, let's call it the Torah here, or Breshit, and I, whatever sources uh, were employed, uh, fine. But at the end of the day, Kasuto would argue the Torah is responding to other accounts of creation. And Kasuto also said those other accounts of creation will appear elsewhere within the Bible. There are all kinds of references to them. And that's certainly obviously true. But at the end of the day, I mean, you raise a very central question, but my own personal view is that we look at the finished product. It's interesting to think about how it became the finished product and what the sources might have been. But at the end of the day, this is the Torah that we have. I would Thank leave you. it at that for now. Um, again, it raises another question about not so much about us, but I guess the uh, implied reader. When, when a person was reading this thousand or 2000 years ago or whatever, what, was, what were their assumptions? Probably not our assumptions. They had all kinds of knowledge that we don't have. Probably other traditions we don't have. Mm-hmm. We read this and we don't know what to make of it but maybe the reader of 2000 years ago knew very well, maybe a hundred stories about Nama, about Tuvokai and his sister, et cetera. So the Medrash sometimes reflects that, but uh, okay, this is a very, uh, sort of a very basic question and important one. Is there anybody else who has something to say? Otherwise we'll pick up our text now with, pick up the Chumash with chapter 21. Okay, if you, I'll, I'll, I'll pause in the, again, and then you can put questions in the chat as well. 
Okay, so now let's move to the beginning of 21. Actually, the question is an interesting question. What happened in between the end of chapter 21 and chapter 20? Because there's a big difference. In other words, there seems to be a the way Avram is, presents, is, is presented in the Chumash. In the first instance, he seems to be an Avimelech or similar to Avimelech. In the second case, he's rebuking Avimelech. He sets aside the Shnebuch Vasot, he rebukes him. Um, again, in the end of 21, as we pointed out last week, he's in Beersheba, which is identified as is part of the land of the Plishtim, but he's not the land of the Plishtim. Avimelech returns to Eretz Plishtim. So there seems to be a movement in the Chumash of separation. Avram separating, not just physically separating from, but I would say emotionally, religiously, etc., separating from Avimelech. And this will continue with the Akedah. But how do we account for the separation? So I will suggest that the beginning, what, what's in between chapter 20 and the end of 21 is the rest of chapter 21. The beginning, middle of chapter 21 will suggest to, to us what happens that allows Abraham or helps Abraham move away from Avimelech and see things differently. So let's begin with chapter 21. So God pokadet Sarah. What does pokad mean? Pokad has many meanings in biblical Hebrew. Here they translate took note of. Took note of is sort of, I would say, para, if you know what I mean. Took note of, God took note of Sarah. You, know, you take note of something, you know, which is incidental. Where's my pen? I can't find it. Oh, I remember now. I left it on the table over there. That's 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 took note. Pokad means can mean to, to save, to deliver, and or to remember. And to remember, to remember the word in biblical Hebrew, Malibu was kar, but the word pokad has a different valence to it. Because the word pokad, unlike the word zahar, which typically in biblical Hebrew has only a positive cast. Not every time, but typically it's positive. But the word pokad carries with the valence of taking account. God took account of Sarah. Now we remember back in chapter 18, when the three uh, angels or messengers of God came and they informed Sarah that you will have a child at the same time next year. And Sarah laughed. And Hashem, Hashem said, why is she laughing? Why is she laughing? Right? Next year. And you will name the child Yitzchak. So over here, Vashem Pokadet Sarak Hashem Amar, God remembers Sarah. God redeems Sarah. God remembers Sarah. God did what God said God would do. But the word Pokad sometimes carries with it not just the positive, but carries with it a punishment. Poked Avon Avot Abanim visits the sin of the parents upon the children. Uviyom, at the story of the golden calf, Uviyom pakti ufakaleti alehem chatatam. And at the, at the appropriate time, I will take account of their, of, of their sin, of the golden calf. Next verse, Vayigof Hashem et Am, so God plagued the people on account of the calf that Aaron had made. And even the very end of Sefer Breshit, when Joseph speaks to his brothers, take me back after I die, take my bones back with you, God will someday deliver you, but you wonder, 
if Prokhodi, if Kohl doesn't carry with it another sense, a sense of holding someone accountable. So that's the question over here. When God is remembering Sarah, God is helping Sarah, God is redeeming Sarah, but does it carry with it another sense as well? God remembers the whole story. Why do you laugh? Why do you doubt? There was, there was a criticism over there, not just for Sarah, but for Abraham. Because Abraham did the same thing. So there's a critique of both. And now what the Torah says, as Atarva Taylor Sarawi Abraham Kunav, she conceived and bore for Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken. Avram called the name of his son that was born to him, which Sarah gave birth to, right? Sarah gave birth to Lo for him, Yitzchak. What's interesting, and there was a couple more psukim, and he circumcised his son eight, at eight days, as the Chumash had spoken in chapter 17, he was instructed to do so. And he himself was circumcised before Yitzhak was born, as God had commanded him. So he was 100 years old when Yitzhak was born to him. Now, what strikes me about these five verses is what actually is not there. What's the, the, there's something about this construction which I find interesting. So, for example, in contrast to chapter 16, chapter 16 is when Sarah says to Abraham, God has prevented me from giving birth. Oh no, Shifkati, go to my, uh, my servant, perhaps I will uh, be built up through her. Whatever she has in mind, the kind of surrogate. Uh, kind of surrogate motherhood. She's the, the, the biological mother. She's going to be the spiritual mother, etc. Probably that's what she has in mind. And the Torah said in chapter 16 that Avram, Vayishma Avram, Sarai, that Avram listened, obeyed, followed Sarah's uh, advice. And the Torah says in chapter 16, uh, verse number four, Vayavo el Vatar. He came unto Hagar and she conceived. Vayavo el Hagar Vatar. And that's a typical Vayavo el X. So that's a description. So they slept together, whatever, and she conceived. Vayavo el Hagar Vatar. There it is. And we have that often. Often, often. Vayavo el X Vatar. What's striking in our chapter is that you don't have that. It doesn't say Vayavo Abraham el Sarah Vatar. It doesn't say that at all. It actually says, and it, it's so strange actually when you think about it, because if you scroll back up to the beginning, it keeps saying, right? That Vatar Abraham Abraham to Abraham. She gave, she conceived and gave birth for Abraham, a son. And then again, Abraham named the son that was born for him, and then again, in, I think in verse number five, let's see, if it's, is that it? No, first, um, yeah. But it's just very strange. It's not what you expect to see. You expect to see what you typically see. 
We don't have it. So what is that about? I'm not suggesting they didn't sleep together, but I'm saying the way the Torah presents it, it presents it in a different way. And verse number six sums this up. God, Sarah says, God has, here they translate, has brought me laughter. Sechok osavi Elohim, maybe. That's not the sense of it. Whoever hears this will laugh with me. That seems very merry and very nice. But the word usually, not always, carries with it a negative meaning, including in this chapter. Often means to, to make fun of, to taunt or to mock or to look at something in a kind of incredulous way. And often it has a sexual side to it. For example, we have it later on in Breshit with Joseph, with Mrs. Potiphar. Mrs. Potiphar says twice in that story, accuses Joseph of being mitzachek, and it has that double meaning of taunting me, taunting me, but it also has a sexual sense. So over here, one can read it as Sechok or Sawi Elohim, that Sarah is attributing the birth to God. God, Sechok or Sawi Elohim, God, God is the partner in this birth. Now, in any event, that's what we would say from a certain perspective. In other words, because as the Torah says clearly, it's biologically impossible for Sarah to have a child. It's impossible, actually. So this is a straight-up miracle. But of course, as God said in chapter uh, 18, here we have the, uh, the miracle, the pele, the wonder, how is this possible? And Sarah says it's possible because God is the one who makes it happen. So that's actually... I think very striking that the Torah, I think, wants us to think about this, that some of this is a miraculous birth. There was a miraculous birth, God intervenes, but not to this extent, and not with the word tzachok. It's so bizarre. Who would, it, who, would, who would have said to Abraham, I have born a son, in his old age. Who would have suspected? Avram himself doubted it, right? We're both too old to have children. So my point is that the Chumash here, at least, is attributing the birth directly and solely to God. And this, I think, has all kinds of interesting implications. It's God's child. And if it's God's child, of course, this is in chapter 21 and 22, what God will do is say, I want my child back, essentially. That's the story of chapter 22. And we should bear this in mind in terms of reading the Akedah. So this is way it's, it's put. Later on, the Chumash says, no. Later on, the Chumash says, Eilat todot Yitzchak ben Avraham. Avraham holid Yitzchak. There you have it. In Pasha Todot, straight up. Avraham holid Yitzchak. says later on, explicitly. Here, though, when, in, when you read this story over here, you get a different sense. That I think is an interesting, something to think about. It's very interesting. Okay, so this is the story. 
Mimi Lewi Avraham in verse number seven, of course, plays off by Yomel Avraham at Yitzchak Beno Ben Shmonat Yamin. Who would have said, who would have told Avraham? Who would have, I mean, the reader says, who would have thought that Avraham would be told you're going to circumcise the son that I will bear? Who would have imagined such a thing? So it's a, it's a kind of rhetorical question. It's, 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 it's fabulous, it's phenomenal, it's, it's wondrous. That's the sense. So Hashem pokadet Sarah, God remembered Sarah, God is doing what God said God would do at the same time. But in the back of our heads, we wonder about the word pokad. Maybe there's more to it than that. The child grew up and was weaned. So he's fully nursed now. And Avra makes a great feast, a great mishteh. Makes a mishteh, makes a party. Party with the to drink. So there's a big party. Perhaps drinking is going on. And now we have the next verse. But Teres Sarah had been Hagar Hamitzrit, Asheyodal Yavraham Yitzachek. Sarah sees the son of Hagar the Egyptian, Asheyodal Yavraham, who I born him for Abraham, Mitzachek. So here we have the word Mitzachek. This, this particular translation says praying, but Mitzachek. I don't think carries a valence of playing. Playing is innocent, you know, child's play. But with Tzachek, carries typically with it a sense of taunting. And in this particular case, it's not just taunting, but Mitzachek plays on the name Yitzchak. So something like, what's the big fuss about, what's the big party about this kid, child number two, when the true heir to Abraham is me? I'm the, I'm the, I'm the older one. I'm the one Avram had prayed for, never prayed for Yitzchak. I'm the one Avram had prayed for. So Mitzachek carries with it a sense of that I supersede. I'm, I'm, I'm really the central one. So two other points, and then I'll stop and take comments. This Pasuk is very interesting. First of all, I wonder about the conjunction of Mishta in verse number eight and Mitzachek in verse number nine. For example, we have it in the story of the golden calf. When the people make a golden calf and Aaron says, come tomorrow morning, and they have this calf and they get up early in the morning. It says, The people sat down to eat and to drink. And they rose up with tzachek, which certainly is a negative. Whether it's promiscuous behavior, as I suspect, because the Torah had said earlier, when you build the altar, be very uh, careful, be very modest when it comes to the altar. Perhaps there were other traditions that had different kinds of behaviors at the altar. But there you have the conjunction of mitzachek on one hand and drinking on the other. So mitzachek, if you look at it this way, it could be that what, Yish, what Yishmael is doing, the son of Hagar the Mitzri, he's not called Yishmael. He's called the son of Hagar the Egyptian. Maybe he's just the life of the party. Maybe he's because uh, he's drunk or whatever it is, or drinking. Maybe he acts in a way that normally one doesn't act. When one drinks, one acts often in ways one normally would not act. But the point is that verse number nine presents his behavior from the standpoint of what Sarah sees. 
It presented from Sarah's perspective. And from Sarah's perspective, she doesn't even mention his name. She mentioned the name of his mother, because remember that his mother made fun of Sarah. There the Torah didn't use the word Ritzachet. There the Torah had the expression, her mistress was light in her eyes, was of no significance, of no importance. And what she sees perhaps in a similar way is that her son is acting in similar fashion. He's making light of the birth of Yitzchak. He's Mitzachek, he's, what's the big deal? After all, I'm the real Yitzchak. That's her perspective. So it's interesting that the Torah presents it from her perspective. Not that her perspective should be uh, disregarded because God will take her side. God says, you have to listen to what she says, but it is interesting and it's always interesting to see how the text presents it. Does it present it as objective fact or does it present it from the viewpoint of a particular person? So here it presents it from Sarah's viewpoint and it puts it in terms of Sarah and Hagar. And we know that back in chapter 16, Sarah had oppressed Hagar and caused her to run away. So here we have a story which links very directly to the story of chapter 16. But Let me stop here for a moment and take comments or questions, and then we'll continue as far as we can get today and continue next week with this. Yes. Did you mention Yitzchak Mitzachek at Rivka Ishto? I didn't mention it, and that is true. It comes up later on. When we get there, I'll, I'll talk about that. Because there, there is really something sexual. I don't think he's making fun in that context. There it's Avimelech seeing him through the window and realizing he can't be brother-sister. That is true. That there the Torah does play with it. I think it has a different sense over there. Here, from Sarah's perspective, it's a negative. That's that's for sure. She sees him mitzachek, and typically mitzachek, and especially when it follows the mishteh, means something inappropriate. It's something he's doing, which, from her perspective, and maybe from the reader's perspective, is something inappropriate. Okay. Is anybody else? Otherwise, I'll continue now. Um, so let's take a little could more. It, we, could it also be? The, the idea of uh, Mitzrayim versus uh, uh, going down to Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim represents uh, immorality. It represents lack of God. Um, and as, again, a foil for what uh, they want Yitzchak to be. Yes, I think that's a very important point. And it actually is, I, I would bring support for, you, for what you're saying. And because remember that the end of the story uh, it, when we'll get, get there, we'll start now and get there next week. When uh, Yishmael was sent out with his mother, and the very end of the story is that at the end of the story, his mother Hagar finds him a wife from Mitzrayim, which solidifies the Mitzrayim link. And in contradistinction to Avraham, who finds a wife from Abraham's homeland, from Haram, he sends his servant in chapter 24 to his own homeland to bring back a wife from there, in the case of Hagar, who becomes the primary parent of Yishmael, as we'll see. And the last verse of the story is, So I think what you're saying uh, is, is very good in terms of there's also the Mitzrayim piece of it. And remember, we, we identify Mitzrayim, forget what we know in general, but we identify Mitzrayim with the story of Paro back in chapter 12, when Avram goes to Mitzrayim, and Paro takes Sarah, and Avram had told Sarah, 
This is not a place where people fear God and they'll kill me. They'll do anything they want. There's no particular set of values they feel compelled to, uh, to follow. So the Ben Hagar Hamitzrit is an important point. It's not just that she sees the son of Hagar who, who had mocked her earlier and she has a history with Hagar, but the Mitzrayim is important as well because both of chapter 12 and what we're going to see later in chapter 21. Okay, in any event, this is what Sarah sees. And now in verse number 10, we have this very dramatic and very, very, I would say tragic story actually. And I'll say a few words about the tragedy here. It's about Tomari Avraham, Garesh She says to Avraham, chase away, Garesh, chase away Amma, Amma is a slave woman, Amma typically in biblical Hebrew was a slave woman, was a higher level than a shifcha. A shifcha is a lower, and Amma often is a slave whom someone marries. So she's married to someone. In fact, in the Chumash later in Pashat Mishpatim, the Torah seems to want to convert every shifcha, every Hebrew shifcha, to an, to, to an Amma, to raise her status. And she says to Abraham, Goresh Amma, so chase out this Amma, together with her son. Notice that she mentions Hagar. It's like, 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 like mother, like, like son. But chase out the mother with her son. Because the son of this Amah cannot inherit in Bini with my son in Yitzchak. So what's interesting, what she says and what she, what she sort of assumes. And what she assumes is, I think, very deep truth about our story. And that is, what she's saying is, I would put it this way, the son of the Amah cannot be here. Because as long as the son of the Amah is here, my son Yitzchak cannot inherit. I would say the following, as long as the son of the Amah, Ishmael, is here, my son will never be primary. Because for Abraham, Yishmael is at least equal to Yitzchak, if not superior. Because he's, that's the son that Abraham prayed for. So she says, we're at a situation in which Sarah's understanding is that the two can't be in the same place. That one has to be set away, sent away, and it's got to be the son of, of the Amah, who's secondary to myself. My son is Yitzchak, and Abraham, I'm your wife. She's the Amah, and therefore, the other one has to be sent away. And there's a very powerful idea over here, which is that as long as Yishmael is going to be in the house, the, this family cannot work. And in point of fact, it's actually a tragedy because, and here's the main point I wanted to make about this, which is that you, sometimes you're in a certain situation. It could be a personal situation, could be a political situation. And the point is, to use the expression we have later in the story, right now, this is the following reality. This is the reality. How it came to be this way, whose fault it is, we can point fingers in every direction. Okay, we made mistakes, they made mistakes, mistakes were made. It doesn't actually matter that much because right now, this is the situation you got to deal with. 
And that's the point over here. If we ask ourselves the question, how did we get to this point? Where Yishmol is the mitzachek, where he has to be kicked out. Because he has to be kicked out because God will say, do what Sarah tells you to do. If you want to point fingers, you can blame Hagar for mocking Sarah. You can blame Sarah for abusing or mistreating Hagar and forcing her to run away. You can point fingers at them. You can point fingers at Yishmael, he was a mitzachet. But the main culprit, I think, actually is none of those three. The main culprit is the hero, which is Abraham. And the fact of the matter is, it goes back to Abraham's treatment of Sarah from day one. It goes back to Mitzrayim. That's where the trouble begins. And that's what Sarah says. You mistreated me in Egypt, and she mistreats me now. She thinks light of me, Kal. That's because Avram Kaveh, Bakesef, Mignel, Azar. It goes back to, and in fact, Abraham said, do whatever you want. He didn't take control of the situation. He never took responsibility. Every, you can point the finger at everybody. It's a tragedy, but right now, this is the reality. And what Sarah says is, whose ever fault it is, it doesn't really matter because this is the reality that we have. If you want to move forward covenantally, and God has made it clear in chapter 17, Yitzchak is the covenantal child. Okay, he's the covenantal child. Let Yishmael stay also. Avram loves him. He can't be here. Because as long as he's here, you won't see clearly. That's the point over here of Sarah's point. And I think that's the point of the chapter. Now, Avram doesn't want to do it. And the next verse makes it very clear. I don't know this translation, I don't know whose translation they're using, but it tries to tamp things down. Vayera hadavar ma'od does not mean it distressed him greatly. Vayera hadavar means the matter was, was evil and it was very evil in Abraham's eyes. Yes, it did distress him. Concerning his son, the Torah could have said concerning Ishmael. The Torah could have said concerning the son of, of, of the Ammah. The Torah could have said the son of, of uh, Hagar. Doesn't say that. Al-Odot Beno, concerning his son, but he has two sons. But if you stop Avram in the street and you say, Avram, what's the name of your son again? My son, uh, Ishmael. That's his son. The Torah purposely used an ambiguous term, but obviously he's not distressed about Yitzchak. He's distressed or he thinks it's wrong to send away his son. He's a person who has com compassion for the stranger. Why would he send away, kick out, Vayigoresh, not just send away, kick out. We have the term in the Garden of Eden, Vayigoresh et Adam, banished. Why would he banish the son? Okay, he did a bad thing. Why can't he stay? Okay, he won't be covenantal. So the matter was evil concerning his son. In Avram's head, at this point, his son is Ishmael. And now God has to step in. So God said to Abraham, let the matter not be evil in your eyes concerning the boy and concerning your, 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 your servant, Amatecha. He uses, God uses the language of Sarah. Everything Sarah tells you, obey. For through Yitzchak, 
shall, shall you be continued. Because the covenantal son is Yitzchak. And what's interesting is the expression, everything Sarah tells you, listen. What's everything? Because back in chapter 16, when Sarah said to Abraham, listen, I can't have children. God has prevented me from having to take my uh, shifra. Maybe I will build up, be built up. So Abraham hearkened to Sarah. So he listened to take Hagar. And now God says to Abraham, everything she says, listen to. Not just in chapter 16 to take Hagar, but in chapter 21 to send Hagar and her son away. Because your, your name will be established. And Avram, then God continues. The Gamet Ben Hamalu but the son of the of this of the slave, I will make into a nation. So don't worry about him. You're not sending him away where he will perish. Because I guarantee, right? I guarantee that he will become a nation. And actually, this guarantee is found already in chapter 17. Because when Avram said, when God said to Avram, Sarah will have a child. And the first words out of Avram's mouth were, would Yishmael will live? And God said, no, Sarah's the one. But for Yishmael, it says in chapter 17, I hear you, I listen to you. I'm going to do what you want. I blessed him. I have 12 princes. I make him a great nation. He'll be great. Goy Godol is a striking expression, chapter 17, because Avram is told, Ishmael is your son. He is your son. And it'll be a great nation. And he carries your name too, but not covenantally. There's only one covenantal son, not two. And therefore, everything Sarah says, obey. So the text here, the Chumash in chapter 21, is actually recalling the story of chapter 16, the whole chapter 16 starts off one way. And then by the end of chapter 16, Sarah's out of the picture. Because the angel says to Hagar, your son, you have a son and you will call him Ishmael. That's what the angel said to Hagar in chapter 16. And Abraham named his son Ishmael as well. So the parents of Ishmael after chapter 16 are Abraham and Hagar. But Yitzchak is Abraham and Sarah's child. And this is the covenantal child. That's what God says to Abraham. So God says, God steps in. You know, this is the Torah reading for Rosh Hashanah, for the first day of Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah is actually in the Chumash, is one day. So the Torah, the Gemara says that on Rosh Hashanah, we read Vashem Pokadat Sarah, which is chapter 21. It doesn't say how much we read. Our practice is to read the Akedah on the second day. But the primary reading, obviously, is this. So why is this the primary reading for Rosh Hashanah? It's very strange. Why? You would expect the primary reading, maybe the Akedah, but why this? So there are a couple of good reasons why this. I'll mention one of them now, and maybe one next week. But one is that Rosh Hashanah is presented to us. The Chumash says virtually nothing about Rosh Hashanah. It's an important Rosh Chodesh in the Chumash. It's the Rosh Chodesh of the seventh month. 
But in rabbinic thinking, in the Mishnah, Gemara, etc., it's the day of God's kingship. It's the day that we enthrone God. We call God king on Rosh Hashanah. And the king of Rosh Hashanah is a king who predates existence, who is present in existence, who's a judge. It's called Zichronot, but also is present in the world. That's called Shofarot. God is present in the world. And in the Chumash, what God said to Noah, basically, is that fundamentally from this point on, human beings will govern the world. We are responsible for the world. The Talmud calls this the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach. God doesn't step in, but sometimes God does step in. And this is one of the examples where God steps in. And the reason God steps in over here is because God is interested in the covenant and because Abraham will never do what Sarah says. We have reached an impasse which will, it will never happen. Because the Torah said, Abraham. the matter was evil in Abraham's eyes. He's not going to do evil. And Sarah can't convince him. So at this point, the king steps in. The higher authority steps in. When there's an impasse, then you go to a third party. And the third party says, in this case, do what she tells you to do. You have to do I'm, that, that, That's the way I want I want it to be. So God steps in. It's the day of kingship. God's governance of the world. But don't worry about Yishmael. He's going to be just fine. He'll be a great nation. Just fine. And now we have Abraham, who is a... Uh, who believes in what God tells him. And Abraham will do what God bids him to do as difficult as it may be. And it is difficult for him to do it. Because he truly loves Yishmael. And here we have the story of chapter four. The story, of course, has echoes in the Akedah as well. We're there too in the Akedah in 22. He gets up in the morning. means he gets up to do what God has commanded him to do. Doesn't delay. He takes lechem, he means bread. But lechem in biblical Hebrew means more than just bread. It means that which sustains you. The Torah speaks of the sacrifices as lechem, korbani lachmili ishai. It's not bread, for the most part, meat. He gives provision to Hagar. He gives lechem, and he gives a, a jug of water, chemat mayim, vayitenu Hagar, and he gives it to Hagar, samal shechma, he places it over her shoulder, vayetayewet, together with the boy, vayishalchera, and he sends her away. And she wandered about in the desert of Beersheba. And the next verse, the water was gone from the jug. And she literally threw, cast the boy, the Yewed, under one of the bushes. So here it's interesting, you know, there's been so much said about this story, about Ishmael, about blaming Avraham, etc., etc. <clears throat> and for many people, the story has all kinds of political repercussions, you know. The Ishmael being the world of the, the Arabs and the Jews, you know, and they want to read the story or read into the story all kinds of things. And our goal here is to try to figure out what the Chumash is saying, leave the politics out of it. You can deal with the politics separately. What does the Chumash say? So first of all, 
I'll present what I think the Chumash says. The Chumash does not blame Abraham for not giving them enough food. He gave them plenty of food. The reason that they run out of food and run out of water in a desert, which can kill you, is very simple. The Torah says, she wandered and was lost. Toeh. We already had the word Toeh back in chapter 20. When Abraham said to Abimelech, ever since Akasher Elohim ever since God caused us to wander aimlessly, hitu. That's chapter 20. And we have the same word in chapter 21. Hagar gets lost. Getting lost in the book of Genesis is not about having a bad sense of direction. Joseph got lost on the way to Shechem to meet his brothers. Um, a, a person sees Joseph, he's wandering or lost in the field. When you're lost in this book, whether it's Abraham in chapter 20, whether it's Hagar in 21, or Joseph in 37, it's all the same, which is no sense of direction, no sense of purpose, no understanding. So he gave them enough provisions, certainly, but she gets lost and she has now put herself and her child into terrible danger. And what the Chumash is interested in here is the response of Hagar to the situation. And the first response is in verse number 15, when the water runs out, she cast the Yeled, the boy, the child, under one of the bushes. First of all, let me simply take note of the fact here, and we'll discuss this, if not today, next week, that this child here is called the Yeled in verse number 15. In verse 16, he's also called the Yeled. Earlier, when Abraham gave um, the water and the food to Hagar, he says, he gave it, put on her shoulder together with the yelet. So the word yelet appears at least three times. But when God says to Abraham, not to worry, God says to Abraham, doesn't call me yelet. He calls him a nar. And the same is true in verse 17. God heard the, the voice, the cry of the boy, of the nar. Now as a young person. So it's interesting to take note of the fact that sometimes in the story, the Torah calls this, describes the boy as a yelet, and sometimes it describes him as a nar. So let's keep that in mind. We'll try to figure out where the Torah calls Ishmael a yelet and where it calls him a nar. He's at least 13 years old. That we know. He was circumcised at age 13. So he's not a yelet. You think of a four-year-old or a two-year-old or whatever. He's more than that. So really the question is, why does the Torah call him a yelet? A nar would seem more appropriate than yelet. So we'll come back to this question of nar versus yelet. But the first thing she does in verse number 15, she casts the yelet, tachat achad asichim, and then in the next pasuk, in 16, she sits across from him. A bow shot away. Ki amra, for she thought, said to herself, I don't want to see, look at the child, the yelled who is dying. She sat neged, again the word neged, and she lifted up her voice and she cried. 
And now the question is, what do we make of this behavior? And what do we make of the way the Torah presents it? Those are really two separate questions, I think. The Torah presents it a certain way. So let me just say one thing now, we'll continue with this next week, and then next week, hopefully start with the Akedah as well. First of all, there is a critique over here of Hagar, at least two critiques of Hagar. Let me say at the outset that I think the Chumash wants us to be sympathetic to her, to feel bad for her situation. We can appreciate she doesn't want to see this child die. Um, but uh, on the other hand, she places him far away and she sits from a distance. And the idea of sitting from a distance of not being with the person in their suffering, because I don't want to see it, strikes me from the Torah's perspective is extremely problematic. And we'll see next week, I think the Torah actually calls her on this. This is inappropriate and calls her on it in two different ways. And we'll see that next week. But I did want to add one other point here, apart from sitting far away or literally throwing or casting the child under one of the bushes, we have to remember something else about the story, which is that the story of chapter 21 recalls chapter 16. But in chapter 16, God, the angel speaks to Hagar. The angel said to Hagar in chapter 16 that, right, you're going to have a child. And the, the Malach said, he will dwell amongst his brethren. So she was told he will dwell amongst his brethren. Later on, the Torah repeats that in chapter 25. He dwells amongst the brethren. She was told explicitly that this child will be cared for by God. So what the story demonstrates from the Torah's perspective is she has a little faith in that promise because she was told straight out. She seems to have forgotten the promise of the angel in chapter 16. That's point number one. And point number two is how does one behave in this kind of crisis? And the idea of abandoning the child because I don't want to see the child die, I can't bear it, I think from the Torah's perspective is not the best course of action. In fact, God will say in the very next verse, and I'll stop with this, says, Elohim al kol hanar, at kol hanar, God heard the cry of the boy. What's with you, Hagar? Altiri, don't be afraid. God has heard the cry of the boy, from where he is. So that's a critique, from where he is. Not where he should be, or you should be, from where he is. So we'll see next week uh, about more about this verse, God's response. God heard the cry of the Nar. The Torah never said the, the boy was crying. The Torah says she's crying. She lifted up her voice and cried. And the next verse is, but God heard the cry of the boy, not her cry. The cry of the boy. Was he actually crying or not? So we'll begin with that next week. So next week, the plan is to continue with chapter 21 and then to jump right away to, uh, to the Akeda. We have a couple of minutes for comments or questions. And uh, yes, you can always send me an email to dsoberatresha.org. Concerning Beersheba, uh, if that's okay. 
Yes. Yes, my question is, I, I'm just surprised that when it happens, the Beersheba hasn't been named yet. And it, I, I just noticed that this Beersheba is named again and again, because then Itzhak is naming it again. So the name stays the same, but the reason for naming, uh, well, are changing. And here it hasn't been named yet. And she is lost in Beersheba. I'm also asking myself if, if Beersheba is here as a kind of symbol for or something that you know the given word the oath and she is lost in the given word is there is there something there to, to yeah, okay so let me say two things first of all i will hopefully talk about the two names of beersheba which you, you're correct one of them is there are several issues with beersheba one is that yisrael names it for one reason and avram names it for a different reason the name of beersheba appears twice both in chapter 20 I think in 26, the end of chapter 26, and of course at the, after the, uh, the end of chapter uh, 21, later on. Um, Beersheba figures very prominently in, in the book in general, I'll discuss that, but your point is, is a good point. It's called the desert of Beersheba, and that is a very striking point. So we have to reflect on that point. Thank you for that comment. That's an interesting comment. But what is the, perhaps we can speculate what the Torah has in mind here by recalling us about Beersheba or, or maybe anticipating Beersheba, which comes up just a few verses later at the end of the chapter. That's a, a very good point. I have to think about that. Yeah. A short, a short comment. Yes. Maybe the difference between Hayeled and Hanar is that Hayeled or Hayeled Sheli. She wouldn't call him Hanar, she'd call him Hayeled. Okay, if, look, I mean, I'm not sure, I'm not, right, right. I, I mean, I would say that for, in other words, Yeled is, a Yeled typically is, is, is one that's dependent upon someone else. The word Yeled is from the word Yeled, a, 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 yeah. a newborn. Now, it's true that the word Nar sometimes can be used for that as well, and next week I'll show you another part of the Chumash, where the Chumash has someone called the Nar and called the Yeled. And he's certainly a Yelet. He's newborn, actually. But he's called a Nar. And, and, he's, and someone hears the voice of the Nar. He named Nar Bocheh. We'll talk about that next, next week. You know, in Hebrew, we say, we call them Yeladim, even if they're old. That's we right. To the, to the mother sometimes, this is my boy. The boy can be 60 years old. But for yeah. the mother, it's, 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 it's a child, it's a kid. You know what I mean? So that is true. When it talks about Hagar's relationship, it typically uses Yelet. When it talks about dependency, he gives he gives Hagar the, the water and the and the food, Vieta Yelet together with the Yelet. So the sense of dependency. And actually, that sense of dependency, I think, does two things. It makes it a much more poignant story, but it also, frankly, puts her behavior of casting him away, as it were, in a very negative light. If you if you if if, if you if you're responsible for somebody, you don't say, "I'm sending him over there. I don't want to see him die." The point is to be with the other person in their in their in their travails. Part of it is sometimes you know you sometimes we find ourselves in situations. I've been there. There's very little you can do. You go to someone to see someone. They have a very very sick child, the infant. I had this in my own extended family, and there's nothing you're going to say. There's nothing to say because you know that this little infant is gonna die shortly and no one can save the infant. But you nonetheless go, you visit and you sit there actually, and there's nothing to say. 
There are no words, actually. But you show up. That's the point. And that's what Hagar doesn't do. She doesn't show up. And that's what she's called on. I have heard that God says the, the sound of the boy, of the not basher husham. Basher, the one over there, shouldn't be over there. You should be with him. And I think that is the clearly within the story part of the critique. Of, there is a critique of her, but the Chumash is never black and white. We're also sympathetic. We can totally understand her, her, her great distress completely. So there's a that's the beauty of these stories. They're, they're, they're very real, they're very complicated, they're very nuanced. It's, the real stories in the Chumash are never black and white. The heroes are never black and white. The important characters are never black and white. But there is a very strong critique over here. And we'll see in the Akeda that the Akeda plays off the story, among other stories as well. All right, so I'll stop here at this point. And uh, next week we'll continue. And then we'll start with the Akeda as well. And thank you everyone for being here. I wanted to make a quick note that in addition to this class continuing, for the next few weeks, we have two new classes starting this week. They're both part of our uh, spring class roster on the theme of perspectives on plague. Starting tomorrow evening at 8 p.m., we have What Stops the Plague with Ms. Miriam Gedweiser. And starting on Wednesday at 1 p.m., we have Divrei Dever, Responsa in Plague Time with Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Zuckier. Uh, you can find information about both of those classes and all of our upcoming events on our website at trisha.org slash classes. And we hope you'll take a look at those and we hope that we'll see you back here for another learning opportunity with Trisha very soon. Uh, also, uh, today is International Women's Talmud Day. We had our Associate Education Director, Ravanit Lea Sarna, give a shear this morning as part of that. Uh, if anyone's interested, uh, you should be able to get a recording of that on our website, hopefully very soon. So uh, thanks for being here this morning, and we hope to see you again soon.